Chapter Six of the Italian. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Italian by Anne Radcliffe, read by Gary Day. Chapter Six. For here have been some six or seven who did hide their faces even from darkness. Shakespeare. Elena, on thus suddenly losing her aunt, her only relative, the friend of her whole life, felt as if left alone in the world. But it was not in the first moments of affliction that this feeling occurred. Her own forlorn situation was not even observed, while affection, pity, and irresistible grief for Bianchi occupied her heart. Bianchi was to be interred in the church, belonging to the convent of Santa Maria della Pieta, the body attired according to the custom of the country, and decorated with flowers, was carried on an open bier to the place of internment, attended only by priests and torch-bearers. But Elena could not endure thus lightly to part with the relics of a beloved friend, and being constrained by custom from following the corpse to the grave, she repaired first to the convent to attend the funeral service. Her sorrow did not allow her to join in the choral symphonies of the nuns, but their sacred solemnity was soothing to her spirits, and the tears she shed while listening to the lengthening notes assuaged the force of grief. When the service concluded, she withdrew to the parlour of the Lady Abbess, who mingled with her consolations many entreaties that Elena would make the convent her present asylum and her affliction required little persuasion on this subject. It was her wish to retire hither as to a sanctuary, which was not only suitable to her particular circumstances, but especially adapted to the present state of her spirits. Here she believed that she should sooner acquire resignation and regain tranquillity than in a place less consecrated to religion, and before she took leave of the abbess it was agreed that she should be received as a boarder. To acquaint Vivaldi with her intention was, indeed, her chief motive for returning to the Villa Altieri. After this her resolution had been taken. Her affection and esteem had been gradual in their progress, and had now attained a degree of strength, which promised to decide the happiness or misery of her whole life. The sanction given by her aunt to this choice, and particularly the very solemn manner in which, on the evening preceding her death, she bequeathed Elena to his care, had still endeared him to her heart, and imparted a sacredness to the engagement which made her consider Vivaldi as her guardian and only surviving protector. The more tenderly she lamented her deceased relative, the more tenderly she thought of Vivaldi, and her love for the one who was so intimately connected with her affection for the other, that each seemed strengthened and exalted by the union. When the funeral was over, they met at Altieri. He was neither surprised nor averse to her withdrawing a while to a convent, for there was a propriety in retiring, during the period of her grief, from a home where she no longer had a guardian, which delicacy seemed to demand. He only stipulated that he might be permitted to visit her in the parlour of the convent, and to claim, when decorum should no longer object to it, the hand which Bianchi had resigned to him. 
notwithstanding that he yielded to this arrangement without complaining, it was not entirely without repining. But being assured by Elena of the worthiness of the abbess of the Santa Maria della Pieta, he endeavoured to silence the secret murmurs of his heart with the conviction of his judgment. Meanwhile, the deep impression made by his unknown tormentor, the monk, and especially by his prediction of the death of Bianchi, remained upon his mind, and he once more determined to ascertain, if possible, the true nature of this portentous visitant, and what were the motives which induced him thus to haunt his footsteps and interrupt his peace. He was awed by the circumstances which had attended the visitations of the monk, if monk it was, and by the suddenness of his appearance and departure, by the truth of his prophecies, and above all by the solemn event which had verified his last warning, and his imagination, thus elevated by wonder and painful curiosity, was prepared for something above the reach of common conjecture, and beyond the accomplishment of human agency. His understanding was sufficiently clear and strong to teach him to detect many errors of opinion that prevailed around him, as well as to despise the common superstitions of his country. And in the usual state of his mind, he probably would not have paused for a moment on the subject before him. But his passions were now interested, and his fancy awakened, and though he was unconscious of his propensity, he would perhaps have been somewhat disappointed to have descended suddenly from the region of fearful sublimity, to which he had soared, the world of terrible shadows, to the earth on which he daily walked, and to an explanation simply natural. He designed to visit again at midnight the fortress of Paluzzi, and not to watch for the appearance of the stranger, but to carry torches into every recess of the ruin, and discover at least whether it was haunted by other human beings than himself. The chief difficulty, which had hitherto delayed him, was that of finding a person in whom he could confide, to accompany him in the search, since his former adventure had warned him never to renew it alone. Signor Bonamo persisted absolutely, and perhaps wisely, to refuse his request on this subject, and as Vivaldi had no other acquaintance to whom he chose to give so much explanation of the affair as might induce compliance, he at length determined to take with him Paolo, his own servant. On the evening previous to the day of Elena's departure to the Santa della Pieta, Vivaldi went to Altieri to bid her adieu. During this interview his spirits were more than usually depressed, and though he knew that her retirement was only for a short period, and had as much confidence in the continuance of her affection as is perhaps possible to a lover, Vivaldi felt as if he were parting with her for ever. A thousand vague and fearful conjectures, such as he had never till the moment admitted, assailed him, and amongst them it appeared probable that the art of the nuns might win her from the world, and sacrifice her to the cloister. In her present state of sorrow this seemed to be even more than probable, and not all the assurances which Elena gave him, and in these parting moments she spoke with less reserve than she had hitherto done, could entirely reassure his mind. "'It should seem, Elena, by these boding fears,' he said imprudently, "'that I am parting with you for ever.' 
I feel a weight upon my heart which I cannot throw off. Yet I consent that you shall withdraw a while to this convent, convinced of the propriety of the step, and I ought also to know that you will soon return, that I shall soon take you from its walls as my wife, never more to leave me, never more to pass from my immediate care and tenderness. I ought to feel assured of all this, yet so apt to my fears that I cannot confide in what is probable, but rather apprehend what is possible. And is it then possible that I yet may lose you? And is it only probable that you may be mine for ever? How, under such circumstances, could I weakly consent to your retirement? Why did I not urge you to bestow immediately those indissoluble bands which no human force can burst asunder? How could I leave the destiny of all my peace within the reach of a possibility which it was once in my power to have removed, which it was in my power? It is perhaps still in my power. O oh, Elena, let the severities of custom yield to the security of my happiness. If you do go to the Santa Maria, let it be only to visit its altar. Vivaldi delivered this expostulation with a rapidity that left no pause for Elena to interrupt him. When at length he concluded, she gently reproached him for doubting the continuance of her regard, and endeavoured to soothe his apprehensions of misfortune, but would not listen to his request. She represented that not only the state of her spirits required retirement, but that respect to the memory of her aunt demanded it, and added gravely, that if he had so little confidence in the steadiness of her opinions, as to doubt the constancy of her affection, and for so short a period, unless her vows were secured to him, he had done imprudently to elect her for the companion of his whole life. Vivaldi, then ashamed of the weakness he had betrayed, besought her forgiveness, and endeavoured to appease apprehensions which passion only made plausible, and which reason reproved, notwithstanding which he could recover neither tranquillity nor confidence, nor could Elena, though her conduct was supported and encouraged by justness of sentiment, entirely remove the oppressions of spirit she had felt from almost the first moment of this interview. They parted with many tears, and Vivaldi, before he finally took his leave, frequently returned to claim some promise, or to ascertain some explanation, till Elena remarked with a forced smile that these resembled eternal adieus, rather than those only of a few days, an observation which renewed all his alarm, and furnished an excuse for again delaying his departure. At length he tore himself away, and left the Villa Altieri, but as the time was yet too early to suit his purposed inquiry at Paluzzi, he returned to Naples. Elena, meanwhile, endeavouring to dissipate melancholy recollections by employment, continually busied in preparation for her departure on the following day, till a late hour of the night. In the prospect of quitting, though only for so short a period, the home where she had passed almost every day since the dawn of her earliest remembrance, there was something melancholy, if not solemn. In leaving these well-known scenes, where, it might be said, the shade of her deceased relative seemed to linger, she was quitting all vestige of her late happiness, all note of former years 
and of present consolation, and she felt as if going forth into a new and homeless world. Her affection for the place increased as the passing time diminished, and it seemed as if the last moment of her stay would be precisely that in which the Villa Altieri would be most valued. In her favourite apartments she lingered for a considerable time, and in the room where she had supped on the night immediately preceding the death of Signora Bianchi, she indulged many tender and mournful recollections, and probably would have continued to indulge them much longer, had not her attention been withdrawn by a sudden rustling of the foliage that surrounded the window. When on raising her eyes she thought she had perceived some person pass quickly from before it. The lattices had, as usual, been left open to admit the fresh breeze from the bay below, but she now rose with some alarm to close them, and had scarcely done so when she heard a distant knocking from the portico, and in the next instant the screams of Beatrice in the hall. Alarmed for herself, Elena had, however, the courage to advance to the assistance of her old servant, when, on entering the passage leading to the hall, three men, masked and muffled up in cloaks, appeared, advancing from the opposite extremity. While she fled, they pursued her to the apartment she had quitted. Her breath and her courage were gone, yet she struggled to sustain herself, and endeavoured to ask with calmness what was their errand. They gave no reply, but threw a veil over her face, and seizing her arms, led her almost unresisting, but supplicating, towards the portico. In the hall, Elena perceived Beatrice bound to a pillar, and another ruffian, who was also masked, watching over and menacing her, not by words, but gestures. Elena's shrieks seemed to recall the almost lifeless Beatrice, for whom she supplicated as much as for herself but entreaty was alike unavailing for each, and Elena was borne from the house and through the garden. All consciousness had now forsaken her. On recovering she perceived herself in a carriage, which was driven with great rapidity, and that her arms were within the grasp of some persons whom, when her recollection returned more fully, she believed to be the men who had carried her from the villa. The darkness prevented her from observing their figures, and to all questions and entreaties a death-like silence was observed. During the whole night the carriage proceeded rapidly, stopping only while the horses were changed. When Elena endeavoured to interest by her cries the compassion of the people at the post-houses, and by her cries only, for the blinds were closely drawn. The postilions, no doubt, imposed on the credulity of these people, for they were insensible to her distress, and her immediate companions soon overcame the only means that had remained by which she could make it known. For the first hours a tumult of terror and amazement occupied her mind, but as this began to subside, and her understanding to recover its clearness, grief and despondency mingled with her fears. She saw herself separated from Vivaldi, probably for ever, for she apprehended that the strong and invisible hand which governed her course would never relinquish its grasp till it had placed her irrecoverably beyond the reach of her lover. A conviction that she should see him no more came at intervals, 
with such overwhelming force that every other consideration and emotion disappeared before it and at these moments she lost all anxiety as to the place of her destination and all fear as to her personal safety as the morning advanced and the heat increased the blinds were let down a little to admit air and elena then perceived that only two of the men who had appeared at the villa altieri were in the carriage and that they were still disguised in cloaks and visors she had no means of judging through what part of the country she was travelling for above the small openings which the blinds left she could see only the towering tops of mountains or sometimes the veiny precipices and tangled thickets that closely impended over the road about noon as she judged from the excessive heat the carriage stopped at a post-house and ice water was handed through the window when as the blind was lowered to admit it she perceived herself on a wild and solitary plain surrounded by mountains and woods the people at the door of the post-house seemed unused to pity or be pitied the lean and sallow countenance of poverty stared over their gaunt bones and habitual discontent had fixed the furrows of their cheeks they regarded elena with only a feeble curiosity though the affliction in her looks might have interested almost any heart that was not corroded by its own sufferings nor did the masked faces of her companions excite a much stronger attention elena accepted the cool refreshment offered her the first she had taken on the road her companions having emptied their glasses drew up the blind and notwithstanding the almost intolerable heat of noon the carriage proceeded fainting under its oppression elena entreated that the windows might be open when the men in compliance with their own necessity rather than her request lowered the blinds and she had a glimpse of the lofty region of the mountains but of no object that could direct her conjecture concerning where she was she saw only pinnacles and vast precipices of various tinted marbles intermingled with scanty vegetation such as stunted pinasters dwarf oak and holly which gave dark touches to the many-coloured cliffs sometimes stretched in shadowy masses to the deep valleys that winding into its obscurity seemed to invite curiosity to explore the scenes beyond below these bold precipices extending the gloomy region of olive trees and lower still other rocky steeps sunk towards the plains bearing terraces crowned with vines and where often the artificial soil was propped by thickets of juniper pomegranate and oleander elena after having been so long shut in darkness and brooding over her own alarming circumstances found temporary though feeble relief in once more looking upon the face of nature till her spirits being gradually revived and elevated by the grandeur of the images around her she said to herself if i am condemned to misery surely i could endure it with more fortitude in scenes like this than amidst the tamer landscapes of nature here the objects seem to impart somewhat of their own force their own sublimity to the soul it is scarcely possible to yield to the pressure of misfortune while we walk as with the deity 
amidst his most stupendous works. But soon after the idea of Vivaldi glancing athwart her memory, she melted into tears. The weakness, however, was momentary, and during the rest of the journey she preserved a strenuous equality of mind. It was when the heat and light were declining that the carriage entered a rocky defile, which showed, as through a telescope reversed, distant plains and mountains opening beyond, lighted up with all the purple splendour of the setting sun. Along this deep and shadowy perspective, a river, which was seen descending among the cliffs of a mountain, rolled with impetuous force, fretting and foaming amidst the dark rocks in its descent, and then flowing in the limpid lapse to the brink of other precipices, whence again it fell with thundering strength to the abyss, throwing its misty clouds of spray high in the air, and seeming to claim the sole empire of this solitary wild. Its bed took up the whole breadth of the chasm, which some strong convulsions of the earth seemed to have formed, not leaving space even for a road along its margin. The road, therefore, was carried high among the cliffs that impended over the river, and seemed as if suspended in air, while the gloom and vastness of the precipices, which towered above and sunk below it, together with the amazing force and uproar of the falling waters, combined to render the pass more terrific than a pencil could describe or language can express. Elena ascended it, not with indifference, but with calmness. She experienced somewhat of a dreadful pleasure in looking down upon the irresistible flood, but this emotion was heightened into awe when she perceived that the road led to a slight bridge, which, thrown across the chasm at an immense height, united two opposite cliffs, between which the whole cataract of the river descended. The bridge, which was defended only by a slender railing, appeared as if hung amidst the clouds. Elena, while she was crossing it, almost forgot her misfortunes. Having reached the opposite side of the glen, the road gradually descended the precipices for about half a mile, whence it opened to extensive prospects over plains and towards distant mountains. The sunshine landscape, which had long appeared to bound this shadowy pass, the transition was as the passage through the veil of death to the bliss of eternity. But the idea of its resemblance did not long remain with Elena. Perched high among the cliffs of a mountain, which might be said to terminate one of the jaws of this terrific gorge, and which was one of the loftiest of a chain that surrounded the plains, appeared the spires and long terraces of a monastery, and she soon understood that her journey was to conclude there. At the foot of this mountain her companions alighted, and obliged her to do the same, for the ascent was too steep and irregular to admit of a carriage. Elena followed unresistingly like a lamb to the sacrifice, up a path that wound among the rocks, and was coolly overshadowed by thickets of almond-trees, figs, broad-leaved myrtle, and evergreen rose-bushes, intermingled with the strawberry-tree, beautiful in fruit and blossoms, the yellow jasmine, 
the delightful acacia mimosa, and a variety of other fragrant plants. These bowers frequently admitted glimpses of the glowing country below, and sometimes opened to expansive views bounded by the snowy mountains of Abruzzo. At every step were objects that would have afforded pleasure to a tranquil mind, the beautifully variegated marbles that formed the cliffs immediately above, their fractured masses embossed with mosses and flowers of every vivid hue that paints the rainbow, the elegance of the shrubs that tufted, and the majestic grace of the palms which waved over them, would have charmed almost any other eye than Elena's, whose spirit was wrapped in care, or than those of her companions, whose hearts were dead to feeling. Partial features of the vast edifice she was approaching appeared now and then between the trees. The tall west window of the cathedral, with the spires that overtopped it, the narrow pointed roofs of the cloisters, angles of the insurmountable walls, which fenced the garden from the precipices below, and the dark portal leading into the chief court. Each of these, seen at intervals between the gloom of cypress and spreading cedar, seemed as if menacing the unhappy Elena with hints of future suffering. She passed several shrines and images half hid among the shrubs and the cliffs, and, when she drew near the monastery, her companion stopped at a little chapel which stood beside the path, where, after examining some papers, an act which she observed with surprise, they drew aside as if to consult respecting herself. Their conversation was delivered in voices so low that she could not catch a single tone distinctly, and it is probable that if she could, this would not have assisted her in conjecturing who they were, yet the profound silence they had hitherto observed had much increased her curiosity now that they spoke. One of them soon after quitted the chapel, and proceeded alone to the monastery, leaving Elena in the custody of his comrade, whose pity she now made a last, though almost hopeless, effort to interest. He replied to all her entreaties only by a waving of the hand, and an averted face, and she endeavoured to meet with fortitude, and to endure with patience, the evil which she could neither avoid nor subdue. The spot where she awaited the return of the ruffian was not of a character to promote melancholy, except, indeed, that luxurious and solemn kind of melancholy which a view of stupendous objects inspires. It overlooked the whole extent of plains, of which she had before caught partial scenes, with the vast chain of mountains, which seemed to form an insurmountable rampart to the rich landscape at their feet. Their towering and fantastic summits, crowding together into dusky air, like flames tapering to a point, exhibited images of peculiar grandeur, while each minuter line and feature withdrawing at this evening hour from observation seemed to resolve itself into the more gigantic masses, to which the dubious tint, the solemn obscurity that began to prevail over them, gave force and loftier character. The silence and deep repose of the landscape served to impress this character more awfully on the heart, and while Elena sat wrapped in the thoughtfulness it promoted, the vesper service of the monks, breathing softly from the cathedral above, came to her ear. It was a music which might be said to win on silence, and was in perfect unison with her feelings, 
solemn, deep, and full. It swelled in holy peals and rolled away in murmurs, which attention pursued to the last faint note that melted into air. Elena's heart owned the power of this high minstrelsy, and while she caught for a moment the sweeter voices of the nuns mingling in the chorus, she indulged the hope that they would not be wholly insensible to her sufferings, and that she should receive some consolations from sympathy as soft as these tender-breathing strains appeared to indicate. She had rested nearly half an hour on the turfy slope before the chapel, when she perceived through the twilight two monks descending from the monastery towards the spot where she sat. As they drew near, she distinguished from their dress of grey stuff, the hood, the shaven head, where only a coronet of white hair was left, and other ensigns of their particular order. On reaching the chapel they accosted her companion, with whom they retired a few paces, and conversed. Elena heard for the first time the sound of her conductor's voice, and though this was but faintly, she marked it well. The other ruffian did not yet appear, but it seemed evident that these friars had left the convent in consequence of his information, and sometimes when she looked upon the taller of the two she fancied she saw the person of the very man whose absence she had remarked, a conjecture which strengthened while she more accurately noticed him. The portrait had certainly much resemblance in height and bulk, and the same gaunt awkwardness, which even the cloak of the ruffian had not entirely shrouded, obtruded itself from under the folded garments of the recluse. If countenance, too, might be trusted, this same friar had a ruffian's heart, and his keen and cunning eye seemed habitually upon the watch for prey. His brother of the order showed nothing strongly characteristic, either in his face or manner. After a private conversation of some length, the friars approached Elena and told her that she must accompany them to the convent. When her disguised conductor, having resigned her to them, immediately departed and descended the mountain. Not a word was uttered by either of the party as they pursued the steep tract leading to the gates of this secluded edifice, which were opened to them by a lay brother, and Elena entered a spacious court. Three sides of this were enclosed by lofty buildings, lined with ranges of cloisters. The fourth opened on a garden, shaded with avenues of melancholy cypress, that extended to the cathedral, whose fretted windows and ornamented spires appeared to close the perspective. Other large and detached buildings skirted the gardens on the left, while on the right spacious olive grounds and vineyards spread to the cliffs that formed the barrier to all this side of the domain of the convent. The friar, her conductor, crossed the court to the north wing, and there, ringing a bell, a door was opened by a nun, into whose hands Elena was given. A significant look was exchanged between the devotees, but no words. The friar departed, and the nun, still silent, conducted her through many solitary passages, where not even a distant footfall echoed, and whose walls were roughly painted with subjects indicatory of the severe superstitions of the place, tending to inspire melancholy awe. Elena's hope of pity vanished as her eyes glanced over these symbols in the disposition of the inhabitants, and on the countenance of the nun 
characterized by a gloomy malignity which seemed ready to inflict upon others some portion of the unhappiness she herself suffered as she glided forward with soundless step her white drapery floating along these solemn avenues and her hollow features touched with the mingled light and shadow which the partial rays of a taper she held occasioned she seemed like a spectre newly risen from the grave rather than a living being these passages terminated in the parlour of the abbess where the nun paused and turning to elena said this is the hour of vespers you will wait here till our lady of the convent leaves the church she would speak with you to what saint is the convent dedicated said elena and who sister presides over it the nun gave no reply and after having eyed the forlorn stranger for a moment with inquisitive ill-nature quitted the room the unhappy elena had not been left long to her own reflections when the abbess appeared a stately lady apparently occupied with opinions of her own importance and prepared to receive her guest with rigour and supercilious haughtiness this abbess who was herself a woman of some distinction believed that of all possible crimes next to that of sacrilege offences against persons of rank were least pardonable it is not surprising therefore that supposing elena a young woman of no family to have sought clandestinely to unite herself with the noble house of vivaldi she should feel for her not only disdain but indignation and that she should readily consent not only to punish the offender but at the same time to afford means of preserving the ancient dignity of the offended i understand said the abbess on whose appearance the alarmed elena had risen i understand she said without making any signal for her to be seated that you are the young person who is arrived from naples my name is elena de rosalba said her auditor recovering some degree of courage from the manner which was designed to depress her i know nothing of your name replied the superior i am informed only that you are sent here to acquire a knowledge of yourself and of your duties till the period shall be passed for which you are given into my charge i shall scrupulously observe the obligations of the troublesome office which my regard for the honour of a noble family has induced me to undertake by these words the author and the motives of this extraordinary transaction were at once revealed to elena who was for some moments almost overwhelmed by the sudden horrors that gathered on her mind and stood silent and motionless fear shame and indignation alternately assailed her and the sting of offended honour on being suspected and thus accused of having voluntarily disturbed the tranquillity and sought the alliance of any family and especially of one who disdained her struck forcibly to her heart till the pride of conscious worth revived her courage and fortified her patience and she demanded by whose will she had been torn from her home and by whose authority she was now detained as it appeared a prisoner the abbess unaccustomed to have her power opposed or her words questioned was for a moment too indignant to reply and elena observed but no longer with dismay the brooding tempest ready to burst over her head 
"'It is only I who am injured,' said she to herself. "'And shall the guilty oppressor triumph, "'and the innocent sufferer sink under the shame that belongs only to guilt? "'Never will I yield to a weakness so contemptible. "'The consciousness of deserving well will recall my presence of mind, "'which, permitting me to estimate the characters of my oppressors by their actions, "'will enable me also to despise their power.' "'I must remind you,' said the abbess at length, "'that the questions you make are unbecoming in your situation, "'and that contrition and humility are the best extenuations of error. "'You may withdraw.' "'Most true,' replied Elena, bowing with dignity to the superior, "'and I most willingly resign them to my oppressors.' "'Elena forbore to make further inquiry or remonstrance.' and perceiving that reproach would not only be useless, but degrading to herself, she immediately obeyed the mandate of the abbess, and determined, since she must suffer, to suffer, if possible, with firmness and dignity. She was conducted from the parlour by the nun who had admitted her, and as she passed through the refectory where the nuns, just returned from vespers, were assembled, their inquisitive glances, their smiles and busy whispers, told her, that she was not only an object of curiosity, but of suspicion, and that little sympathy could be expected from hearts, which even the offices of hourly devotion had not purified from the malignant envy that taught them to exalt themselves upon the humiliation of others. The little room to which Elena was led, and where, to her great satisfaction, she was left alone, rather deserved the denomination of a cell than of a chamber, since, like those of the nuns, it had only one small lattice, and a mattress, one chair and a table, with a crucifix and a prayer-book were all its furniture. Elena, as she surveyed her melancholy habitation, suppressed a rising sigh, but she could not remain unaffected by recollections which, on this view of her altered state, crowded to her mind, nor think of Vivaldi far away, perhaps for ever, and probably even ignorant of her destination, without bitter tears. But she dried them as the idea of the Marchesa obtruded on her thoughts, for other emotions than those of grief possessed her. It was to the Marchesa that she especially attributed her present situation, and now it appeared that the family of Vivaldi had not only been reluctant, but absolutely averse to a connection with hers, contrary to the suggestions of Signora Bianchi, who had represented that it might be supposed only from their known character that they would disapprove of the alliance, but would, of course, be reconciled to an event which their haughtiest displeasure could never revoke. This discovery of their absolute rejection awakened all the proper pride which the mistaken prudence of her aunt, and her affection of Vivaldi, had lulled to rest, and she now suffered the most acute vexation and remorse, for having yielded her consent to enter clandestinely into any family. The imaginary honours of so noble an alliance vanished, when the terms of obtaining them were considered, and now that the sound mind of Elena was left to its own judgment, she looked with infinitely more pride and preference upon the industrious means which had hitherto rendered her independent. 
than on all distinction which might be reluctantly conferred. The consciousness of an innocence which had supported her in the presence of the superior began to falter. Her accusation was partly just, said Elena, and I deserve punishment, since I could, even for a moment, submit to the humiliation of desiring an alliance, which I knew would be unwillingly conferred, but it is not yet too late to retrieve my own esteem by asserting my independence and resigning Vivaldi for ever. By resigning him, by abandoning him who loves me, abandoning him to misery, him whom I cannot even think of without tears, to whom my vows have been given, who may claim me by the sacred remembrance of my dying friend, him to whom my whole heart is devoted, O oh, miserable alternative, that I can no longer act justly, but at the expense of all my future happiness. Justly! And would it then be just to abandon him, who is willing to resign everything for me, abandon him to ceaseless sorrow, that the prejudices of his family may be gratified? Poor Elena perceived that she could not obey the dictates of a just pride, without such opposition from her heart, as she had never experienced before. Her affections were now too deeply engaged to permit her to act with firmness at the price of long-suffering. The consideration of resigning Vivaldi was so very grievous that she could scarcely endure to pause upon it for a moment. Yet, on the other hand, when she thought of his family, it appeared that she could never consent to make a part of it. She would have blamed the erroneous judgment of Signora Bianchi, whose persuasions had so much assisted in reducing her to the present alternative, had not the tenderness with which she cherished her memory rendered this impossible. All that now remained for her was to endeavour patiently to endure present evils which she could not conquer, for to forsake Vivaldi as the price of liberty, should liberty be offered her on such terms, or to accept him in defiance of honourable pride, should he ever effect her release, appeared to her distracted thoughts almost equally impracticable. But as the probability of his never being able to discover her abode returned to her consideration, the anguish she suffered told how much more she dreaded to lose than to accept Vivaldi, and that love was, after all, the most powerful affection of her heart. End of chapter 6